All right, we're going to go ahead and get into the book of Psalms. Why don't you grab your Bibles, and we're going to open up to Psalm chapter 4 and chapter 5. Psalm chapter 4 and chapter 5. Thank you, Chris, for getting that all done. Well, as pastor of uh, a church, you often get a chance to see the really good things and rejoice with those who rejoice, and you also get to see a lot of the bad things and weep with those who weep. Uh, and when, when things hit, they usually hit in waves, right? You guys know that from your own personal lives. Uh, but we are a church who has a lot of things going on right now and a lot of folks going through stuff, and so I am so thankful that we get to sit in two psalms of lament today and talk about what lament is because it is a powerful tool that I think our church can use to encourage one another and build one another up. Uh, and so I'm excited to be in Psalms 4 and 5 this morning. I'm pretty sure the Bouniers were going to tune in from the hospital. Um, I don't know if they're, they're on, but if they are, hi guys, we love you, we miss you. Uh, John, keep healing. Well, this morning I want to start with a question. What is the greatest good for humanity? Think about that for a moment. What is your greatest good? What is the best thing that you can receive? If we were to look at the society around us, we would probably surmise that attaining individual lordship is the greatest good. That's what our society tells us. We examined this a bit last week. The ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, is what most people desire. Just watch a few advertisements, and you'll see that that is what most marketing points to, is your own lordship. But is that humanity's greatest good? As Christians, we could probably immediately answer no. But when given the, the chance, this unlimited power and freedom often ends up in chaos and destruction, and that's why we would say no. A simple survey of history will show that when individuals get this unlimited power, it does not go well. Amen? amen. And I know it doesn't go well in my own life. Amen? <laughs> Perhaps then we might surmise that the greatest good supposedly is comfort and security. After all, it's what most of mankind works for from an economic standpoint. If we have more money, we think, then we're going to be secure, right? No problems once we have money, right? But again, a simple survey of those with the most money and fame and fortune are often the most disenchanted and anxious. And this rules out fame as well as our greatest good. Fame just brings, brings headaches with it. Just ask anyone who has ever truly been famous. Okay, then what about unconditional love? That's got to be the greatest good. Well, we quickly rule this out as well, as we live in a day and age where there are more options than you can handle in your phone alone to find your soulmate. And yet, there doesn't seem to be an increase in relationships that last. Quite the opposite. So maybe that's not humanity's greatest good. What about then finding out who you truly are and being true to your authentic self? This has a big draw in the current day. But our society will hopefully soon find out what statistical reality has pointed out for a very long time, that an incoherence between the reality of who one is and who one thinks they are is the beginning of the spectrum of mental unhealth. Maybe our greatest good is just simply to never be uncomfortable. Another way to talk of this is to say that we have an expectation that we are never to be out of homeostasis or equilibrium. 
But a quick look to anything that causes growth, such as education or exercise or even relational intimacy, requires us to be uncomfortable for us to grow. So what then is our greatest good? If all of these get ruled out and we see just in practicality that they are not our greatest good, what then is humanity's greatest good? Perhaps it is as simple as the Bible declares it to be. At the beginning of the book, God's word declares that we were created to be in union with God and with one another. A perfect union in which we as the creature were to submit to his rule as the creator and were to exist as we were intended to in this creator-creation relationship. We were tasked with work that was fruitful and beneficial and with the purpose to reflect his character to all creation and to one another. And at the end of the book, when we see ourselves in the restored heaven and earth, the same reality is put back in right order, and God's glory and mankind's good is full once again. And at the center of the book is the story of Jesus, who is the perfect example of that obedient human, walking in the lordship of the Father, living in a way that declares God's rule, living, dying, resurrecting, so that we can be brought back into relationship with our Creator. In these three anchor points of the biblical storyline and many others, we see that mankind's greatest good is to be united intimately with our God as creator, savior, and Lord. That's our greatest good. That's the biggest and best thing that we can desire. Unfortunately, mankind has at its core the desire to lord over God and one another. We've bought into the lie that Satan has sown that if we are Lord, that we can grasp glory, power, wealth, fame, and eternity without God, then we will be happier. I'll be happy when, we say. We'll be happier than if we simply submit to God's good order as he is creator and we are creation. And so God, in his great grace, utilizes the brokenness of this world that we have invited in by Satan's rebellion and his influence over our rebellion and our rebellious actions. He uses this brokenness to remind us of our greatest good. He uses suffering to remind us to accept that we are his creation and he is a good and wonderful creator. Amidst suffering, God shows us that our greatest good is not found in manipulating him so that we can be Lord, but it's found in drawing near to him and letting our relationship with him grow and flourish. And amazingly, ironically, that often happens the most when we encounter trials that elicit lament. Lament is a cry to God for help. When our trials cause us to cry out to God for help, quite often those are the moments where we draw the nearest to the Lord. I've been so blessed in the last few weeks as I've seen people go through extremely hard circumstances. And then to say in the midst of those circumstances, even without complete answers on the other side, God is so good. He's drawn me near. Friends, when we lament, that is oftentimes what draws us closer to God. And that is what we'll see this morning as we look at Psalms 4 and 5. King David will give us two laments that both call out an appeal for God's help. We will see in Psalm 4, David show us two ways of lament, and then show us in detail what the way of lament that leads to closer intimacy with God looks like in chapter 5. And this morning, what we'll be looking at 
is the fact that lament draws us closer to God. Look at lament that draws us closer to God. That's the title for this morning. Now, we heard Psalm 5 read earlier to us as part of the preparation for the ministry of the Word. Let's now, as a united, unified assembly of God's people, read Psalm 4. And as we read it, remember that we're going to be reading out of the ESV, so if you have a different translation, it'll be slightly different. But as we read it, let's read with the tone and emotion that David is intending, one of a cry and plea to God for help. Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But you know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord Yahweh. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing that we notice in both Psalms 4 and 5 is that lament is the natural cry of God's suffering creation. Lament is the natural cry of God's suffering creation. In the introductions, we see David naturally cry out to God, make an appeal for his help. This is very much the natural cry of God's suffering creation. Now, numbers vary because it's not something that can be totally objectively defined. But generally, it is agreed that there are somewhere between 55 and 70 lament psalms in the book of Psalms. Some are individual, like we read today, and some are communal of all Israel crying out to God. And with these numbers, the psalm type of lament makes up the largest portion of psalms in the Bible. Let me say that again. The psalm type of lament makes up the largest portion of psalms in the Bible. Now, friends, how should this inform our expectations for this life if the largest category of psalms is a cry for help in the midst of struggle and suffering? What do you think we should expect? Suffering. Perhaps existing in the wealthy and entertained society we have become has blinded us to the reality that we live in a fallen, broken world. And our expectations have been set that we will have heaven in this life rather than in the next. We as believers know of the struggle of much of the rest of the planet. We support brothers and sisters across the world. But then, as if turning our brains off, we look at our own lives and wonder why they're not easier and more comfortable. But the Psalms of Lament should give us great comfort They should point out to us the fact that we're suffering is not abnormal. They show us that it is the normal journey 
of humankind to walk through suffering, especially of God's people, because we have an adversary that hates us and hates the God that we serve. And so this can comfort us when we find ourselves suffering because we realize we are not alone in the trials and struggles that we face. Amen? There are brothers and sisters across this entire world who know suffering, and we can stand firm with them in the faith. That's a beautiful thing. But then it also reorients us to the reality of our role and place in this world. We are the creation, are we not? We're not the creator. For if we were Lord and creator, we would be the ones answering the lament, not listening for it. Our regular cry for help reminds us of who we are. It humbles us, and it reminds us of who God is. Amen? When I became a parent, I was blown away by the emotion that was elicited in my heart when I heard my children cry for help. I love all your children as well, but there was something about when it was my offspring that cried for help, something in me awoke that I had never felt before. And it was also shocking to me how Kelly and I could, for the most part, distinguish between the cry of rebellion or simple need and the cry for help. Parents, you know what that cry is like, right? That's the one that gets you jumping five feet off the ground and moving as fast as lightning, right? And when they would cry for help, it would move us. Especially, I have to say, as a father hearing my daughter cry out, my heart was drawn instantly in a desire to help and scoop my children up in love and care. But interestingly enough, in most circumstances, I couldn't really do much to help fix the pain. But that didn't seem to matter to the kids. Yes, we'd bandage their owies and do whatever else was needed, but what was sweet about most of those moments, and still is, is the ability to just hold our kids or hold one another when we're lamenting in the midst of trials and struggles and hurts. The trial, you see, it eventually passes, and what's left is this amazing bond that remains. Our children know in those moments that we can be trusted to hold them tight through the trial. The lament itself and the roles of lamenter and the caregiver showed who was the adult and who was the child. How awkward would it have been to be the other way around? In fact, relationships where there is a switch of roles in situations like this are often found to be an unhealthy reversal of roles because the role of caregiver, the role of lamenter is set. Same thing is true for us with God. God is the caregiver. We're the lamenter. And as it says in Romans 1, the creation speaks clearly of the creator. The fact that this parent-child or this caregiver-lamenter picture is there. Our laments quite clearly show that we are the creation and God is the creator. We are the ones in need of care and God is the caregiver. So right away, lament helps us. It humbles us. It helps us to understand truth and step out of the lies that we've been fed that we can be lords of our own life. And this is exactly what the beginning of both laments show. Look again at David's opening statements in Psalm 4 and 5. In Psalm 4, verse 1, notice it. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. Hear my prayer. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. 
Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my King. For to you do I pray, O Yahweh. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now in chapter 4, especially in the English, we might read this as presumptuous, as if David is commanding God. But the Hebrew and the rest of the verses clear this up. Notice that David calls him the God of my righteousness. This is not David saying he is innately righteous, for it is God who holds the righteousness and has given it to David. David understands that he is part of God's covenant people, and therefore God will hear his prayer and answer when he calls because he is a faithful covenant God. Friends, this is who God is to his people. For example, twice in the book of Exodus, God notes himself as hearing his people, acquainted with their suffering and hearing their lament. This is from Exodus 2.25. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He sees you when you're struggling. He sees you in trial. And friends, he knows Exodus 3, 7, then the Lord, Yahweh, said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Friends, we serve a God who knows our struggles and trials. He was in all points tempted as we are. That means he has sat where you have sat. He has struggled with what you have struggled with. And so David is motivated to cry out and lament because he knows his God. He knows his character. He knows that he is a gracious God who will answer his prayer because of the history of God's interaction with his people. And part of the reason that the Bible has been called a love note to his people is because it is a running history of his amazing love and graciousness towards those that are his. And so David can expectantly cry out to God amid suffering and know that he will hear. This expectancy and understanding of the creator-creation and Lord-subject relationship is seen in the opening to Psalm 5 as well that we just read. And here David is so agonized that he is unable to form words at points. He says, consider my groaning. He calls God to hear his groaning. Friends, can you resonate with that at all? So unsure of what to ask for that your prayer is simply groaning. God, help. I don't even know what to pray for. Maybe it's even wailing to God. Just simply crying out to God because of the brokenness that surrounds you. David wails out to the authority higher than himself because he knows he's listening. The anointed earthly king, David, the anointed earthly king of Israel, calls Yahweh my king and my God. His prayer becomes a sacrifice because he is rightly noting that Yahweh is his Lord, and then he waits expectantly to hear from God. You see, our prayers, friends, our sacrifice. We read earlier from Revelation This picture of bowls holding our prayers. Elsewhere in Revelation, it says that our tears are literally stored. This is beautiful metaphoric language for the fact that God hears our struggles and our suffering. And this is where we must pause because we will hear that David expects to hear from God. Now immediately, 
we start to think about what that means to us. We all might have different understandings of what hearing might mean. What exactly is David expecting when he says, God will hear and answer? Well, friends, there are two very different ways that are shown, and that's what we see next in Psalm 4. We see two ways of lament contrasted. Two ways of lament contrasted. Now, the remainder of Psalm 4 is really these two routes of lament, these two ways of lament that we as humans can take. But to see it, we need to take some cues from David's writing that might not be obvious in a surface read of the text. Commentators have a number of different views of what the background context of this psalm is. Some believe it's a situation where David is simply being slandered by high-ranking men in an attempt to stage a coup. They assume this from verse 2, and it makes sense that the Hebrew behind O men uh, is this strong title of standing. So it's not just any men, it's men of standing in his kingdom. Uh, and that it says that his honor has been turned into shame. So this idea definitely has merit. But I think the key to understanding this psalm is actually found in verses 5 through 7. Because if this is about David and his glory or honor, why would he then be telling these men of high standing to offer right sacrifices? to trust in Yahweh. Verse 6 then lays out the fact that these men are questioning the goodness of Yahweh. They are, as is evident in other places of the Old Testament, lamenting in a way that questions God's goodness. Notice it says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. They're disputing God. Now David hints at this. When he says that Yahweh, in the midst of the suffering they are all undergoing, has put joy and peace in David's heart, more so than when these other men are trying to achieve only receiving abounding grain and wine, material uh, prosperity, the signs of material wealth. So the picture that is being painted here is that this is a time in which Israel is in a level of famine. And who do the secondary rulers and common people blame when a nation is in a time of famine? They blame the king, do they not? They blame the leader. For it's the leader of the government's job to provide and protect. We see the same thing in our society today. So when there is danger, when there is not economic prosperity, who do people blame? In our country, they blame the president. Now these nobles are turning to David in anger, heaping reproach on him and discounting the goodness of God. They're even using a line there in the second part of verse 6 from the ironic blessing in Numbers that we sing every Sunday as our benediction. They're saying, as if sarcastically and passive-aggressively in their lament, who will show us some good? Because God's not. Lift up your countenance upon us, O Yahweh. You promise you will. You're letting us down. That's the subtext you can read in this. And the implication with David's call to offer right sacrifices and put their trust in Yahweh is that they're doing the opposite. They, like the people around them, are turning away from the truth of their covenant relationship with Yahweh and are turning to lies and vain words, it says in verse 2. Lies and vain words. And this idea, coupled with this desire for prosperity, leads us to believe that the, the context is that they're turning to Baal worship as Israelites. And this was Israel's habit, was it not? We see this elsewhere throughout the Old Testament. And so what we have here is David challenging and exhorting against this way of lament that is so common to man. Rather than viewing God through the lens of his covenantal faithfulness and steadfast love, 
Mankind often views God, I would say the majority of the time, even as Christians, we view God as our cosmic butler that is meant to do as we please because we are lords in our own eyes. And when he does not provide or deliver for us in a way that seems fitting to us, we begin to look to other things, other so-called gods, other means of providing peace and prosperity. We begin to doubt his goodness, and we passive-aggressively cry out that he is letting us down. And we betray the fact that at our core, our sinful selves doubt his character. There's a transactional method about it all that shows a very works-based righteousness and view of grace. God, I've been obedient. Why aren't you holding up your end of the bargain, we say, in times of this kind of lament. For when we hold God to account on not holding up his end of the so-called bargain, we are innately saying that he is in default because we are so righteous and good and deserving. And friends, this is what the humanistic gospel gives to us, the fact that God owes us. And just so you know, that's a false gospel. It's a lie. Rather than stay true to the truth of God's word that has been proven over and over again amidst his people, we begin to give our time and talents and treasure and hearts over to other things, false gods, or worse yet, a perverse view of who Yahweh is. We contort him into a God that is meant to meet our needs at any given time because we are Lord, not him. The symptom of this kind of transactional view of God is shown by where we try to find joy and peace. Friends, think about it for a moment. Where do you immediately run to find joy and peace when suffering hits? Is it on your knees to the Lord in prayer? Is it to his faithful word or to his faithful people? Or is it somewhere else? Like these men, we think we will find peace in the greatest good of abundant material wealth and provision and escape and entertainment. We think that comfort and prosperity is our greatest good. And in so doing, we fall right in line with Adam and Eve, who thought the provision was more important to gain than relationship and submission to the provider. Brothers and sisters, does this form of lament sound familiar? I would wager that each of us, myself included, have cried out in a similar accusatory lament. Why aren't you keeping up your end of the bargain, God? Why have you let me down? Many of you know my family's story with trying to have kids. My wife and I had many miscarriages before our, our boys, between our boys and our daughter, and then after our daughter. And in the midst of many of these miscarriages when we were younger, I did just this form of lament. It was one of the worst moments of my Christian walk when our fifth miscarriage happened and I went up to our bedroom and I held God in reproach <clears throat> because I put forth the faulty evidence before him that I had been so faithful to him and here he was not being faithful to me. Little did I know the enormous, enormous amounts of grace that he would shower upon me and my family and my church through all of that suffering and trial. My words in that moment as I cried out in anger at God were lies and vanity. And yet even in the midst of that betrayal and that rebellious attempt to lord over God, 
God provided. He was so perfectly faithful to me. For in that moment, his character reminded me and rushed over me, and I knew that God would be faithful even though we could not see a way out. And he has proven so in so many different ways and definitely not in the timing I would have lorded over him. For friends, God's character is sure even when mine and yours is not. And it's in trusting in him as Lord that we find the true godly way of lament, the second way that David shows us so perfectly. For David perfectly lays out a way of lament that could not be more opposite than this transactional view of lament. He begins by calling to remembrance the goodness of God and the truths that he can stand fast upon even when life is unsure. We saw in the introduction in verse 1 that he expects God to be gracious, not based upon worldly perceptions, but because God has been gracious before. He says he has provided relief, righteousness, and grace to his people. Right there in verse 1. And then David reminds himself, he reminds himself by reminding these critics of God that the Lord is faithful in his covenant to his chosen people. Look at verse 3. He says, but no. In other words, you can bet on this. Know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. David uses Yahweh's name strategically here to remind God's chosen people that he is a God unlike any other false God, any other Baal or Lord. The Hebrew word behind godly here is not a morally pure people, but the word in Hebrew is hesedi. Everybody say hesedi. It comes from the word that you've heard used before, hesed, which means God's pure and steadfast covenant love. It is one of the most prominent character traits of God. He has hesed, steadfast love towards his people. So these people are those that are called by grace to participate in the covenant of God's steadfast love, his hesedi. That's who you are, dear friends. He has made you his own. He has set apart you to shower with his covenant love, to cover and protect with his steadfast covenant love. And as one of God's Hasidi, David tells these critics, he says, Yahweh hears his people. Yahweh hears his people. After all, he is the God who hears. For all other gods are deaf and dumb and unable to act. And as God, he deserves our worship and praise and godly fear for this very fact. So David suggests to them that rather than sin and idolatry, they should tremble in holy fear. Look at verse 4 there. It says in the ESV, be angry and do not sin. That, wor that word behind be angry can better be translated in this context, tremble. Tremble and do not sin. He calls them to ponder this truth while they lie on their beds. And rather than critique God, be silent in reverence, and then to respond to this acknowledgement of who God is with right sacrifices and to trust in Yahweh, trust in the Lord. Remember, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, behind it is the tetragrammaton, the name of God, Yahweh. Trust in Yahweh, he says to these men, even though it doesn't make practical sense. And if this context I'm giving you is true, and the, the country was in famine at this point, they would probably be saying, that doesn't make sense. These other fertility gods, we can manipulate them. Why can't we manipulate Yahweh? Because he's actually God. 
You see, Satan can be manipulated. His demons that stand behind these false gods can be manipulated. God cannot be manipulated. And so he calls them to respond with right sacrifices and trust in Yahweh, even if it doesn't make practical sense. For God's purpose in the midst of suffering is our greatest good and his greatest glory. Our greatest good to draw near to him and trust in him and experience his glory. That's your greatest good, dear friends. It's not for our comfort comfort or our prosperity because God knows the heart of man and the likelihood that we would mistake the things of provision for our own glory, for our own power, for our own salvation or salvation itself, rather than turn to him in worship and trust as our greatest good. Friends, if you don't think this is true, just be honest with yourself for a moment and think about the last time that you just begged the Lord for something to occur. It could have been godly and good, but think about how quickly you moved on once it was answered. Am I the only sinner in the room that does that? How often I beg the Lord, Lord, please let this happen. It happens, I go, I knew you'd do it. And next, right? Rather than give amazing praise and thanksgiving for the fact that he led us through this trial, he helped us through it. This goes all the way back to what we talked about in Colossians with worship having at its heart thanksgiving to God for being the God that he is. Our greatest good is to draw near to him and trust in him and experience his glory. As new covenant believers, all we must do to remember God's faithfulness is to look to the cross. There amongst the greatest suffering that a human can bear, Christ, the God-man, took on all the sin and suffering of the world to bring about creation's greatest good, reconciliation with the creator, with the Father God. The very core of our faith is that our God is powerful enough to redeem even suffering so that we might be made one with him in perfect union. That's the story of the cross. For the joy set before Christ, he endured even the suffering of the cross, despising the shame it required and receive the honor of being enthroned king over God's kingdom. The very good news we follow, brothers and sisters, is suffering leads to wholeness with God. For that is the story of the cross. And so when suffering comes by remembering the cross and casting our eyes upon Jesus, we can know that that suffering will result in God's glory and our good. We can trust in that. And so we can look to him in his gospel in times of suffering and realize that through suffering, God has indeed placed, like David says, more joy in our hearts than we could ever receive through material prosperity. For friends, when that thing we are dying for goes away and our hope is supposedly lost and the Lord resurrects our hope and helps us to realize it is only in him, we realize it's a hope that can never be taken away. It's a hope that is strong. It gives us true shalom, true peace that allows us to dwell in safety. Knowing God, being in covenant relationship with him can give us that peace and allow us to lie down and sleep, as David says, because we know that it is our God that can make us dwell in safety and only our God against even our greatest foes of sin, death, and hell. And so nothing can touch us. Nothing can touch us because God has conquered even death. This, friends, is the way of lament that God's people are to practice. 
turning to God, embracing the very pain and suffering that we want to disappear, bringing it before him and remembering his character and the actions that have always come out of his character and then aligning our hearts in trust with his will. This is the way of lament of God's people. And this is what we see in the rest of Psalm 5 as David laments there as well. After the introduction we already looked at in verses 1 through 3, we see that this way of lament is a lament that remembers God's holy character. Lament remembers God's holy character. David has done this in Psalm 4, but he'll do this again in verses 4 through 7 of Psalm 5. Are you with me so far? Let's read Psalm 5, verses 4 through 7. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David first recalls to mind that Yahweh is the God who is also king over his people in the introduction. But then David, the earthly sub-king, expectantly offers sacrifice of prayer to God and he waits expectantly. But his waiting is not passive here. For as David waits, in these verses, he remembers God's holy character. And friends, that is the action you can do when there seems to be nothing else. David needs to remind himself of God's character because it seems in the context of this psalm, in Psalm 5, that there are those that are being duplicitous to David, slandering him, fighting against him when his back is turned. They, like those in Psalm 4, are rebelling against God and in so doing, casting aspersions upon David's honor as well as king. And it would be very easy for David to take the self-righteous road and simply cry out to God that he needs to destroy these men because David is more righteous than they. That might be the cursory reading of this psalm, but if you pay close attention, all of the verses from this point on are bathed in God's character of holiness and covenant faithfulness, not David's. Any of the comments David makes about who he is in contrast to the wicked that are against him have behind them the fact that he would not be righteous at all without God's action of calling him into covenant. The wicked, though, who have rebelled against God are outside of the benefits of that covenant, and therefore, they're far away from God's grace and righteousness, but not so for David. In verse 7, he notes, But I, through the abundance of your hesed, your steadfast love, will enter your house. Not because of David's righteousness, but because of God's amazingly steadfast love. When we forget about everything else about our God, dear friends, because of the suffering we find ourselves in and it causes us to dissociate from everything we know about God, this one thing is what we must remember. God's hesed above all else. He is a God who steadfastly loves those he has drawn into covenant. He is faithful to his covenant responsibility. And therefore, he is faithful. He is faithful to you and to me. And so there is this alternating parallelism that we see that contrasts God's faithfulness to his people and the fact that those outside of his covenantal love will not be heard, nor will God be faithful to them as he is to his people. And this fact shows his justice. He is a just God who will not let evil go undone. 
And so, friends, you can remember in those times of suffering that we have a perfect God that is both just and loving. And this is why he will lead us through suffering. First, we see here on alternating lines God's holiness in regards to the wicked, his just nature. Verse 4, he is not a God who delights in wickedness, so much that evil will not dwell with him. The word dwell here is as if someone is setting up a temporary dwelling like a tent. Evil cannot dwell with God for even a moment. He will not suffer it. And you might immediately say, well, what about Job when Satan goes and stands before him? Well, that's in a courtroom scene. He is not dwelling in covenant with God. No one who is wicked can dwell with God. And that's why it takes God's amazing sovereign grace to save us and draw us into his dwelling place, to draw us into his steadfast love. We cannot do it on our own. Only God can do it. And therefore, the ones who boast in their own good and righteousness and lordship will never stand before him. For it says, says he hates all those who do evil. And we often mistake his patience and long-suffering in this world for God allowing, or worse yet, desiring injustice, violence, and evil. But friends, the word is clear. God hates those who do evil and abhors, verse 6 says, the bloodthirsty and deceitful. He is too just and too holy. And we can rest assured that God will bring judgment upon the wicked, as it says in the beginnings of verse 6. We can rest assured that Yahweh is that God of justice because of his eternal patience. He operates in a different timeline than we often might because we try and force his will into our lifespans that are but a breath. But God is eternal, and he's not in a hurry. And verse 9 shows that David... Amidst this lament of wickedness that surrounds him is reminded that he cannot trust, nor should he even listen to the lies of the wicked. For there is no truth in their mouth as they doubt God's goodness and slander his people. As we receive voices from the world that doubt the God we serve and say, like they did to Christ on the cross, where is your God? Why doesn't he save you? These people flatter with their words, but the fruit of a person comes from within. And what is within, the word says, is wickedness in their innermost self, destruction. For they do not know the God of covenant like we know him through the cross. Now it would be easy for David and us as we read it to begin to assume our own righteousness and lift up our noses at those who are referred to here as the wicked. As if we have some innate goodness within us. But David quickly dismisses this idea with his statements about God's people, including himself. In contrast to what he has just laid out for the wicked. He knows that this statement describes even himself if it were not for God's grace. He is among the wicked, just as you and I are. And we know that this is what he means, for it is this very scripture that Paul uses in his letter to the Romans to state clearly that no human has any innate righteousness of our own. This is Romans 3, 12 through 17. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is where he pulls from this psalm. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The, version of, uh, excuse me, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Paul uses this to state there is no one righteous because this is what David is saying. David understands clearly that he is not innately righteous. And verse 7 shows us this. It shows us that he knows he needs the grace of God, that God alone has steadfast love, and it is in his place as gracious king that he has allowed David and all of his chosen to enter his dwelling place. 
Because of verse 4, we recognize that the evil cannot enter his house, not even for a moment. And so what is it that David allows, or excuse me, what is it that allows David to assume an invitation from God? God's hesed. Verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Friends, our God is not in a hurry. But the one place you do see him in a hurry is the father welcoming the prodigal son home. Our God is in a huge hurry to draw his people, to call them, to love them, to remind them of his hesed, his steadfast love for his own people. You see, friends, we have no goodness that merits God's love. And yet, he loves us with a love that can never be broken. It's steadfast. As with his covenant with Abraham, where God put Abraham to sleep and walked through the sacrifices by himself, God takes on the fullness of covenant responsibility in relationship with you and I. He alone has grace, and he has poured it out to you and I for no other reason than that he is good and gracious. And then, as part of his grace, he gives us cooperating grace to help us in our response. Because we do not sit lifeless in this new life he's given us. He enlivens us in our response. Like David, we then need to bow down in a holy reverence and fear towards God's dwelling place. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. As new covenant believers, that's what we do here every Sunday amongst his people as we worship him together. For we recognize that it is not our worship that earns us his love, nor is it our righteousness that demands he dwell amongst us Only his sovereign grace, only his sovereign love is powerful enough to take you and I who once stood in the camp of the wicked and make us his own so that we might dwell in the security of his love. So friends, when we find ourselves lamenting in the brokenness of this world, when we find ourselves lamenting the wickedness that lies around us that seems to glory in evil and lies and violence and deceit and boasting and unholiness, We should have a natural lament rise from us. And that lament will bring about the humility and trust we see here because we will recognize that we too are like all of the wicked. And yet, by God's sovereign grace, he has made us his own and loves us in his name. It gives us humility because we know that we too once took part in that rebellion of sin that caused the groaning we now feel. And humility that realizes that only through the abundance of God's steadfast love could we be given the security of covenant relationship with him. And lamenting in this way also not only humbles us, but it also breeds trust. The old covenant gives testimony to the fact that when God's people are in distress, God will eventually give them salvation, if not in this life, in the next. As new covenant believers, we see this plainly in the cross and the resurrection, and realize that God once and forever proved his holy goodness by the sacrifice of Christ in place of you and I. Through that beautiful act of love and justice, God showed that he is trustworthy and gracious. And while the timing of our salvation may not be what we demand in the moment, while the timing of God's answering our prayer in the way we want may not be in the timing we want, the Bible reminds us that God's timing is always perfect. Always perfect. Here's one example, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Jesus, why didn't you come earlier? Why didn't you come right in the garden? Why didn't you come later? Why didn't you come in my timing? No, at the right and perfect time, Christ died for the ungodly. And friends, he is God over all creation, not just that one moment in time. Because holy lament that is centered on Christ's character will humble us and build trust of God within us, we can then continue in that lament and trust his promised will. And we see that next in our last point this morning. Lament aligns our hearts with God's holy will. This kind of lament that is contrary to the transactional lament we mentioned before, this kind of godly lament aligns our hearts with God's holy will. A lament that is based in our own lordship is actually just complaining and critiquing God. It's a dispute of his goodness and grace in honor of our own. It's a lie and could not be more false. But a true lament, a holy lament that is based on God's lordship will remember that he is a benevolent king and lord. We can therefore trust his ways and his timing and come to him in humble request in those moments where our hearts are out of alignment with him. We can come to him in humble request that he align our hearts with his own so that we might continue clinging to him in the midst of trials. And this is what we see in the remaining verses of Psalm 5. Would you read them with me now, verses 8 through 11? Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David realizes that he is mortal and weak. And when suffering hits us, we recognize the same, do we not? When trial comes or slander comes to his ears, he will be affected by it, just like you and I. We are not so strong that we can just let those things glance past us. And so lament is a beautiful, God-given, gracious tool for this reason because it's not fighting God, but actually admitting to God that we realize our weakness and our need for him and his strength. Rather than critiquing God, it's us saying, God, I am nothing but dust and I will not make it if not for you. It's admitting our weakness. That's something hard for us to do, is it not? And David approaches the throne of his king and God and humbly requests that Yahweh, not the suffering before him, would lead him. Sometimes we get led by the feelings that suffering builds up. But he's asking that Yahweh would lead him, not his own emotions or feelings or perspectives. He knows that if he allows and follows his feelings regarding what he is hearing and experiencing, he most likely will stray into sin and wickedness as his opponents have. So he calls for Yahweh to lead him in Yahweh's ways, Yahweh's righteousness, as Psalm 1 showed us a few weeks ago. Psalm 1 showed us we cannot find the way of righteousness on our own. We need God to place us there and lead us in that way. Our existence in that way is his grace, and our progress in that way is by his grace, by his steadfast love. And what good news this is, friends. For when we recognize our failings, our wickedness, our evil deep within, we aren't called to sit in shame or self-hatred. We immediately go to Christ in humility and state our weakness 
We don't have an excuse to stay in the way of the wicked, for God in his power has placed us on the way of the righteous. And so we're reminded in these moments that we need him. We are weak, but he is strong, for he alone can make his way straight before us. He alone can lead us in righteousness. And from Psalm 4, he alone can make us dwell in safety. God's will for the wicked based in his justice is that they will be cast out of his presence. All the wicked without the grace of God will bear their guilt and fall by the repetition and reception of their own lies and idolatry. The transgressions of those outside of the grace of God show that mankind is innately rebellious and God is innately just. And so God in his justice will cast them out into eternal darkness and destruction. And part of how lament causes us to realign our hearts with God is that it begins with our pain, but then quickly humbles us to realize that we deserve pain without God's grace. We deserve brokenness. We deserve being cast out. It then points our minds and hearts outward, away from our own pain, to those that are still enslaved by the lies of the enemy and their own sin. Lament, which remembers God's holiness and our unholiness, causes us to worship God, but then have a heart of grace and mercy to those around us that need God's graciousness as well. When we realize we are weak, that helps us to recognize so is everyone else, and they need the gospel. And so if we bring it to them and they harden their hearts towards God's grace then we can trust him to judge justly in his timing. Lament that is centered on God's character will cause us to see the truth about God and about mankind and about ourselves. Going through this process of reframing and turning our thoughts towards heaven will then also cause us great joy and peace. And this is what it says there in verse 11 that we just read. When we find ourselves amidst suffering, lament causes us to remember God's faithfulness to his people And so we can take refuge in that faithfulness. We don't have to worry that we have done something wrong or that God is enacting the punishment clause of this transactional contract that we've signed up with him. We instead remember what his character, his name means. And we recall to mind that we love him because he has steadfastly loved us first. And we know this as new covenant believers because of what he has accomplished in Christ. In salvation, he has already blessed us beyond what we deserve and given us righteousness beyond anything we could ever muster ourselves. And this is not just a portion of how we comfort ourselves during suffering. It is everything. His character is what we wrap ourselves in. The word in the ESV that's rendered here, cover, at the end of verse 11, can also be translated as surround. Friends, when we feel surrounded by evil and the lies of the enemy, and the hatred of the wicked, maybe even just the hatred of the adversary, God surrounds us instead with the favor of his love. And in that love, we have been given a shield to fight off the attacks of the enemy, the lies and accusations that he wants to put forth about us and about God. And so rather than mourn in these moments, lament, the lament that we have looked at this morning, godly lament, It will take our mourning and our groaning and turn it back towards God so that we might see that even our worst suffering has been overcome in him. And instead of mourning, our mourning will be turned into joy and we will sing for that joy that does not cease given our circumstances. And we will find ourselves exulting in God's name and character, especially in suffering brought on by man's sin. We will find ourselves holding on to him 
with everything we have because he will get us through it and prove whether here or on the other side of eternity that he is steadfastly faithful. Mission Fellowship, we must remember this morning that lament draws us closer to God. I know many of you in this room are struggling in different ways. It is the nature of man to struggle. But rather than putting your hope in anything else, turn your eyes to the Lord. And friends, that does not mean that we paste on grins and walk around saying, how you doing? Better than I deserve. No, we lament. We weep with one another. And then we point each other's eyes heavenward so that we can see the goodness of our God. And we can see that his immense power far outweighs our meager circumstances. And then we can take joy in the fact that he in his timing will do what is best for us to attain our best good, our greatest good, and his greatest glory. And we can give him thanks. When we find ourselves in suffering, let's remember that God has graciously given us the gift of lament to draw us closer to him. Amen? Amen. Thank you, God, for the wondrous gift of lament that you have placed in our hearts, that our eyes might be turned away from your circumstances and toward your goodness. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning, so much for the example of David, the man after your own heart, And Lord, we're so thankful for his story, knowing his backstory and the fact that he is absolutely not a righteous man in his own power. Lord, we are able to connect with him and understand what it is to cry out to you in our weakness. When we are broken, when we are under distress, when we are tempted, Lord, David shows us by your inspiration of his words in the Psalms that we can turn to you and cry out to you, that we can look to you And remember your steadfast love, your steadfast character that never moves. And so while we move and while our situations feel like sinking sand, we can turn to you and know that you are not surprised by our circumstances. And you will turn them all for good for those who love you and are the called according to your purpose. And friends, this doesn't mean that we immediately get what we want. But thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that fact, because what it does is it turns us towards our greatest good, which is relationship with you. And so, Lord, thank you for this reminder this morning. Help us to be a people that constantly look to you rather than our circumstances or even our own feelings and bring our emotions and our feelings and our lament to you so that you can reframe them and change them and put them in proper perspective so we can stand on the gospel that is steadfast and on your love and character that is steadfast. Thank you for this reminder this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.